Good morning, everyone. My name's Pat and I'm one of the ministers here. If I haven't met you yet, I hope I'll be able to say hello after the service. Keep your Bibles open to Exodus 1. That's where we're going to be this morning and we'll creep into Exodus 2 as well. And as we begin, let me lead us in prayer. Almighty God, we've just sung, take my life. Please, by the power of your spirit, would you take hold of our lives And through your word, would you give us a right fear of you, resilient hope in you, and a courageous faith for you. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, I went through a big musical theatre phase. I still like musicals, but I was right into it back then. Um, Les Miserables, Hamilton, The Phantom of the Opera, I loved them all. And one of the most satisfying parts of musicals for me is the way that a musical theme, a melody or a line in a song can be introduced early in the show and then it comes back at different points with all of these slightly different variations. And so a mood or a memory, a person or a plot line can be brought to our minds with just a few notes played again in just the right way at just the right time. And so when you hear, you know that the Phantom of the Opera is here long before that line is sung. Of course, the same is true for symphonies and film scores and pop songs and prog rock. As we hear the repetitions, the variations, the patterns, it's not only musically satisfying, it's not just intellectually interesting, but it's emotionally enriching to our whole experience. We're drawn into the story and we're helped to feel it in a richer and fuller way. In that sense, I think that you could say the Bible is a very musical book. Not just in the sense that it records lots of songs for us, but in the way that it takes up particular themes, it introduces them early on in the story, and then they're repeated, reintroduced in different ways with slightly different variations. And that is true of nowhere else more than the Exodus Yes, the Exodus story is a historical record of how God set his people free. We're told, aren't we, in chapter 1, their plight, they are slaves in Egypt. All that follows is a story of redemption and liberation. But the story is told in such a way that it introduces us to themes that will be played again and again and again in the Bible story. There's the tyrannical king, courageous women, the shepherd-like leader, plague and judgment, water and deliverance, wilderness and provision, the lamb who was slain, the tabernacle, the descending glory of the Lord, moods and memories, people and plot lines, they're brought back to our minds as a theme is played again at just the right time in just the right way. And as we train our ears to hear those repetitions and patterns and variations, that's not just kind of theologically satisfying, it's not just intellectually interesting, it should be emotionally enriching. We should be drawn into the story, experiencing it, feeling it in a richer and fuller way. And as we do that, what will happen is we'll begin to recognise those patterns playing out in our own lives. As we actually find these patterns pointing us to their ultimate fulfilment in the gospel. 
The stories that we read here become our story as they reach their fulfilment in a climactic crescendo in the person and work of Christ. And so this is the task ahead of us this term, not just to enjoy a kind of epic romp through history as the Israelites are set free from slavery. No, what we need to do is hear the gospel song played in the key of Exodus. And as we hear the gospel according to Exodus, its song will become our song. And we will add our voices in praise with all the people of God who know him who sets us free. And today in particular, we're going to focus on the opening notes of Exodus in chapters 1 and 2. And it could be tempting, I think, to see these as a bit of a necessary but somewhat boring prologue to the real kind of Prince of Egypt action that kicks off with the burning bush in chapter 3. But I hope we'll see that as we begin our Exodus journey, chapters 1 and 2 introduce us to themes that will take us through the whole book. And this is a story of new beginning, of new birth and new deliverance, new salvation. There are three points for today. So the story of the Exodus begins with the Israelites living in Egypt. What was once a family of 70 has now become a prosperous, fruitful nation. The 12 sons of Jacob, including Joseph, they have passed away, but verse 7 tells us the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. In the Hebrew, these are seven words, which one after the other mean all the same thing. Words are multiplied to show us that the Israelites are multiplying. And this takes us back to the promises of God that he made to Israel's patriarch Abraham in the book of Genesis. You might remember that God promised Abraham his descendants would become a great and mighty nation, a great family as numerous as the stars in the sky. And here they are, growing and growing and growing. Right from the beginning, we know that God has not forgotten his promises and he has not forgotten his people. And yet these verses throw us back even further still. Did you notice in verse 7, Israel were exceedingly fruitful and they multiplied. And we hear the echo of the original command that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. Be fruitful and multiply. Israel are in Egypt and this Egypt is kind of like a new Eden. They are filling, multiplying, subduing, and that's what Pharaoh fears. He's forgotten all that Joseph did for the people of Egypt, and all he can see in this growing people is a growing threat to his own rule. Maybe they're going to fill the earth and subdue him. And so, just as in the garden there was a crafty serpent who entered in bringing death and destruction, now we read of a shrewd Pharaoh. And he sets out to destroy the people of God. First, he enslaves them. Verses 11 to 14 pile up words which describe the heavy burden placed on the Israelites. They were oppressed with forced labor, worked ruthlessly. Their lives were made bitter in all their harsh labor. The Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And when that doesn't work, Pharaoh declares that every Israelite boy must be killed. It is sheer evil brutality. But this is not an action replay of Genesis 3. 
This is not just the same song played on repeat. There is a wonderful poetic reversal taking place in the beginning of the Exodus story. In the garden, Eve was deceived by a serpent. But now it is the midwives who deceive wicked Pharaoh and thwart his evil plans. The midwives are told to kill the baby boys, but listen again to their response in verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God. They did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, oh, well, the Hebrew women, they're not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Don't you just love that? It is bold and daring and total nonsense. <laughs> and sometimes you hear people go, well, is that a lie? Are they, are they doing the wrong thing? There's no sense of blame laid on the midwives here because they are on the side of life. They are far more aware of the presence and power of God than the presence and power of Pharaoh. And the same is true for the whole crew of women involved in the rescue of baby Moses in chapter 2. Moses' mother and his sister and Pharaoh's daughter, they band together to save the little child. This is a new beginning. The daughters of Eve are fighting back against the serpent-like tyrant. And this is so often the case in the Bible, isn't it? Have you noticed how many stories of redemption and rescue in the Scriptures begin not with a powerful man, but with faithful women? It's Eve in the beginning, not Adam, who receives the promise of a Saviour to come. Uh, it's not Judah, but it's Tamar who rescues the royal line. It's Rahab who kicks off the conquest of Jericho. We meet Ruth long before her ancestor, King David. We meet Hannah before her son, the prophet Samuel. Esther, not Mordecai, is the one who rescues the Jews in exile. Elizabeth receives the promises about John the Baptist. It's Mary who bears the baby Jesus. And of course, even at the resurrection, it's women. First at the tomb, the first Easter witnesses. And what is true in the Bible is certainly true in the world, isn't it? Think in your own life. Think about the life of our church, how God uses the sacrificial love and courageous faith of women to work out his purposes in the world. We need to honour that, see that, recognise that. One writer says this, many claim that men make history. It's true. The vast majority of political and military leaders, scientists and CEOs, philosophers and scholars, past and present, are men. That's true, but it's superficial. That's a history according to sight, not faith. Women are not less historically significant than men, but their effect is often hidden. Their quiet faithfulness and fear of the Lord has a far more profound effect on the direction of history than all the feats of manly, macho men. That's beautifully reflected in verse 15 of chapter 1. We're told, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, now who's the king of Egypt? What's his name? We never know. This particular king, according to God, is a mere footnote, a blip on the pages of history. But who are the midwives? Verse 15 continues, their names were Shifra and Puah. 
Later we'll learn the names of Moses' mother and sister. They were Jochebed and Miriam. God saw them. God honoured them. God showed his favour to them. And their names are recorded so that we know history turned on their faith, their courage, not Pharaoh's power and cruelty. This is a new beginning. And it's a beginning tinged with the hope of redemption. And it's no coincidence that this new beginning is full of babies being born. The vigorous Hebrews, the midwives and their families, the birth of Moses. The beginning of the Exodus story is full of women labouring to bring about new life in the face of death and destruction. And their stories prepare us for the story to come. The whole of the Exodus is a story of new birth. You see this in Exodus 4. God gives Moses his great commission as he goes back to Egypt. And this is about as good a summary verse for the whole of the Exodus as you can find. Moses was to say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. The Exodus is the birth the new birth of the nation of Israel, the firstborn son of God. Through the labour pains of slavery, Israel will be born again into a new life of freedom and worship in the presence of God. Um, I was really helped to see that point through this book, Echoes of Exodus by Andrew Wilson and Alistair Roberts. It's in the kind of recommended resources part of your booklet. This is I say this always, don't I? This is one of the best books I've read in the last few years. But this one really is. Love it. And and they talk about how the themes of new birth just keep coming up. The imagery of Exodus is kind of birth imagery. So they say, the Passover is about childbirth. As Egypt becomes a tomb covered in darkness and ash, Israel steps out from the womb through doorposts covered in blood. They set apart their firstborn sons and they later emerge into new life from a narrow passage through waters which then close again behind them. Now that's pretty graphic, maybe you find that a little gross. It all sounds very intense, but I'm no expert. I have heard though that giving birth is no easy thing. It's hard won and painful, it's messy, it's dangerous. And so is the exodus, like the birth of a baby. It is hard won, it's painful, it's messy, it's dangerous. But like the birth of a baby, it is glorious and good. God is going to bring new birth to his people in the story of the exodus. It's a new beginning of new birth and new salvation. In Exodus 2, the focus zooms in from all of the baby boys in Egypt to just one. Again, through the courage and cleverness of the baby's mother, the little boy is rescued, delivered, saved from wicked Pharaoh. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. 
the boy in his basket is carried safely through the water and he comes out into life on the other side. Interestingly, the word used for basket only appears twice in the Old Testament here, and it's the same word used to describe the ark that Noah built. That ark too was coated in tar and pitch. That ark was carried safely through the waters, coming out to life on the other side. This little baby is having his own little story of salvation. But we're not just looking back, but forwards. Because the little baby is given the name Moses, which means kind of drawn out of the water. And this is what will happen to all of Israel. They too will be rescued, delivered, saved from Pharaoh's plans. They will be brought out safely through the waters, coming out into life on the other side. At his birth, Moses has a mini exodus and it prepares us for the mega exodus that is to come. But as we read through chapter 2, we see that that bigger exodus is going to have to wait Because as Moses grows up, he sees the suffering of his fellow Hebrews. He takes matters into his own hands. He strikes an Egyptian and kills him and then is forced to flee from Egypt into the wilderness where he will live for 40 years. It's another exodus, isn't it? But it's not the exodus we were hoping for. It's just Moses. The whole nation needs to make that journey. See, what Israel needs is not just Moses looking upon their suffering. They need God to look upon them. They need not just the concern of Moses, but the concern of God. They need much more than Moses stretching out his hand to strike one Egyptian. They need God to stretch out his hand and fight for them against the whole nation of Egypt. And this is exactly the hope that we are given at the conclusion of chapter 2. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery. They cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This was the only true hope for Israel. And it is the only hope for all who pick up this story and read it in every generation. God heard. God remembered. God looked. God was concerned. That's the story. That's the hope that rings out with fresh power and new hope. That there might somehow, through the power of God, be a new beginning for us. A new birth for us. A salvation that might be our very own. This is a photo of a Bible which was produced in the early 1800s. It was made by slave owners given to their slaves in order to educate them, to teach them how to read. Now, this page should make you a little bit cross. And the top of the page has a chapter from the end of Genesis. And can you see where the story of Exodus picks up? Exodus chapter 19. It's galling, isn't it? But it's not really a mystery why chapters 1 to 18 didn't make the final edit The story of the Exodus was cut out because the slave owners knew 
that this story has the power to embolden those in slavery, to give them hope, to fill them with courage and confidence. And they were right. Because many slaves, despite the slave owner's best efforts, they did hear the story of the Exodus. They heard its melody of new beginning, new birth and new deliverance, and they embraced the hope within its pages. It's striking, don't you think, that those oppressed by slavery in the name of the Christian faith would actually embrace that faith for themselves, that they would know that God was on their side, not on the side of their oppressors. And the Exodus story gave them great courage. I didn't really know this until this week, but often it was courageous women who were leading the charge in liberating their fellow slaves. You might have heard of the story of Harriet Tubman. She escaped from captivity and then she continued working to free those who were still in slavery. And the story goes that when she came through the houses of slaves under the cover of darkness on her rescue missions, she would sing songs. And those songs would let the slaves know that it was time to flee, that freedom had come. She would sing, I'll meet you in the morning. I'm bound for the promised land on the other side of Jordan. Bound for the promised land. Harriet Tubman and others like her heard the songs of the Exodus and she most literally made it her song. There was hope and comfort and strength to be found in the Exodus story. And there is for us too. Whether we are in the bondage of real physical slavery, which we mustn't forget many people in our world still are today, or whether you're oppressed by the cruelty and violence of others in your life, whether you feel enslaved by some addiction, or whether you carry a heavy burden of your own sin. The Exodus story says, here is hope. Have courage. For the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of the burning bush, the God of the Passover of the provision in the wilderness, the God of the Exodus, this God hears your groaning. He remembers, he looks, he is concerned for you. There's hope that God will stretch out his hand and display his power for you. And if this God is on your side, then there is no slavery No circumstance, no suffering, no sin that is so deep God can't reach in and bring his redemption and his rescue. But as we finish, how can we be sure? How can we really know? How how does this ancient history ever become our story? How can the song of Exodus become our song? How can we really have a new beginning, a new birth, a salvation that's our very own? Well, we must hear how every pattern of redemption comes to a glorious crescendo in the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, the Gospels tell us, don't they, that Jesus himself was born under the yoke of oppression. He himself was rescued as a little boy from the rage of a genocidal king. 
Herod made that decree that all the boys under the age of two in Bethlehem should be killed, but Jesus escaped through the courage of a faithful Israelite woman and her name in Hebrew is Miriam. We know her as Mary. And like Moses, Jesus was brought through the waters in his baptism. He went out into the wilderness and fought for his people. All his life, he witnessed the suffering of his people. Like Moses, Jesus lived an exodus-shaped life from beginning to end. But as the story goes on, we will see that Jesus is not just like Moses. Because Jesus himself is the God who sees. He's filled with compassion for his people. Jesus is the God of the burning bush, making himself known to the world. Jesus is the God of judgment and salvation, conquering the power of sin, death and the devil. Jesus is the lamb who was slain. Jesus is the bread from heaven. Jesus is the rock in the wilderness. Jesus is the tabernacle. He is the glory of God in human flesh. And so it's with Jesus that there is a new beginning for all who put their trust in him. Behold, the old has gone, the new has come. With Jesus, there is new birth. We can be born again by the power of the Spirit. New birth into a living hope. And with Jesus, there is salvation. Everyone who trusts in Christ follows the journey that he has been on. We go through the waters of judgment and death and we're brought out safely to the other side into a new life of freedom and worship. Brothers and sisters, how can you know that God is on your side? How can you know that he sees you, that he remembers you, that he knows you, that he's concerned for you? Look to Jesus. Look to his life, his death, his resurrection, and on that basis, you can trust him. I'm very much looking forward to the term ahead as we journey through the book of Exodus, because it's a gospel book, and it is good news, and as we embrace it for ourselves, the song of Moses and of Miriam will be our song too. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. Amen.